Well, a couple of years back now, a few friends and myself, we were down the south coast. We had a bright idea to climb Pigeon House Mountain. Have you heard of Pigeon House Mountain? Yeah. Has anybody climbed Pigeon House Mountain? Yes. Seemed like such a good idea at the time. But I tell you, it was shortly after we started up the climb that the reality of what we were doing set in. It really is a very steep mountain. Pigeon House Mountain something like 700 metres straight up. Well, as the day drew on and as the sun blazed down, I began to wonder if we had done the right thing. My legs hurt, I was thirsty, I had blisters, and every step required all the effort I could muster. But then, but then we reached the top. And as I turn, well, I'll never forget what I saw. What of you? What a view. To look down upon where we had come from. Well, it made the whole thing worthwhile. Over the past six months here at church, we've been studying the book of Romans. Half a year of what has at times been really hard going. Six months trying to understand what the Apostle Paul has had to say to us. Six months, step by step, climbing the theological heights of this mountainous book. Well, today we reach chapter 12. And it's here that Paul gets us to turn around and take a look. To look down from the heights to which we have come. To look back at the view. And what a view it is. See, in the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul has outlined God's plan for the world. I'm sure you remember it began with the proclamation that we're all guilty before God. That we're all facing his wrath. That we all stand condemned before God. But then it's gone on to tell us how God has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. How he sent his son Jesus How Jesus has died on the cross for us. How Jesus has taken our sin and he's died on account of it. Our sin condemned in the flesh of Jesus. We've seen how now we no longer stand condemned. We stand as forgiven people, as justified people, as renewed people, whether Jew or Gentile. Yes, 11 chapters of climbing. And now as we turn and we look back where we've come from, what a view. Because as we look back, we see the awesome panorama of God's sheer mercy. But as we get to see today, to look out upon God's mercy, it ought to do more to us than just leave us spellbound. Now to look out on the, the mercy of God ought to cause us to respond And respond with everything we have. So as we come to God's word now, let's uh, commit ourselves to him in prayer. Please pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to look at your word. And we pray that as we do so, we would clearly understand how it is that we ought to respond to the mercy that you have shown us through your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. 
If you don't already have your Bibles open to Romans chapter 12, you'll find it a lot easier this morning if you have that open in front of you. Romans 12, page 803 of the small print and 1763 of the large print Bibles. And there's also a sermon outline on the back page of the service outline. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And there in verse 1, Paul, he's going to get us to consider God's mercy And he's going to tell us how we ought to respond to God's mercy. Look with me, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Therefore, Paul says, in view of God's mercy, he says, See, after the first 11 chapters of Romans, in many ways, we've now reached the summit. And Paul now wants us to turn around and gaze down upon God's mercy to us. Not so that we stand in awe, but he wants us to respond. And how are we to respond? We are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Now, perhaps it's because this verse has just become so familiar to us that we've lost the strangeness of what's being said here. See, remember that in the ancient world, a sacrifice, well, it was something that was living, but the thing that made it a sacrifice, of course, was the fact that it was put to death. But here Paul tells us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, that is, as ongoing sacrifices. The sacrifice we're to offer, it's not like the one that was offered in the temple. It doesn't begin with the shedding of blood. It's not followed by the burning of the body. No, this is a spiritual act of worship, as Paul puts it. It's not ritualistic, it's spiritual. But it is an offering of the body. It means that the various parts of our bodies are to be dedicated to to God. Our hands, our, our, our tongues, our eyes, our feet, all of us is now to be offered to God, dedicated to him, and to be used for his purposes. You see, that's what's at the heart of Christian worship. Every part of our bodies dedicated to God. That's Christian worship. So you see, the spiritual worship of a Christian, it's not restricted to a sacred site, or a sacred time, or sacred rituals or ceremonies or anything like that. No, Christian worship is all about living for God. Every part of your body dedicated to God every day, everywhere. So when Christians come together for church like we have here this morning, when we come together in order to praise God, when we come together in order to help each other grow as Christians, well, that is most definitely worship. But we need to remember that this is only one aspect of the continual worship that we Christians are to offer God. In other words, Christians don't worship God for just one hour a week. Christians are to worship God every day and everywhere. And we do that as we live for him. So whether you're here in church, whether you're at home brushing your teeth, You are called upon to be worshipping God. 
And that's in no way to, to denigrate the worship that we do here together in church. Now, what it is to do, rather, it's to raise our understanding of worship in every sphere of life. As Christians, there's no part of us that hasn't been pervaded by the mercy of God. And so now we're to offer all of ourselves to him continually in grateful response. But how? How do we go about offering ourselves as living sacrifices? Well, we can only present our bodies to God as genuinely holy and acceptable sacrifices if we've first been transformed. We need to stop conforming to the pattern of the world and instead we need to be transformed. Look with me at verse 2. Verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. We need to be transformed. I love the way the J.B. Phillips uh, Bible translates this, this verse. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mould. See, because whether we realise it or not, the culture in which we live has this certain moulding influence upon us. It has this power upon us, a very potent power. Our culture, it's got its own views and its own assumptions and opinions. It's got its own values and objectives and priorities, the things that it approves of, the things that it disapproves of. And it's all a, a powerful force that constantly pushes in upon us. But the ways of the world and the ways of God, they couldn't be more different. Think about it. God says, oh, the world says, repay evil with evil. God says, repay evil with good. The world says that sex is enjoyment without commitment. God says sex is enjoyment with commitment. You see, at point after point after point, the pattern of the world is at odds with the will of God. And now you have to choose. You either conform or you transform. But know this. If you intend to offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God in response to the mercy that is shown you, then you're going to have to transform. And how does this transformation take place? What do you got to do? Look with me again at verse 2. Verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our transformation will take place when we renew our minds. What does that mean? Well, the mind, it's kind of the the control tower for the rest of the body, isn't it? It affects the way we behave. It determines the way that we behave. So when, for example, my mind believes that uh, true contentment is found in mountains of money, that'll be seen in my behaviour. I'll lie, cheat, steal, I'll work excessive hours. If my mind believes that heaven is my true home, Well, that'll be seen in my behaviour. I won't be running after money that'll one day be consumed. No, I'll have my mind on kingdom matters. Do you get it? Your thinking affects your behaviour. 
So only by transforming your mind, by transforming the way you think, can you even begin to live God's way. So you see, it says we dwell upon God's word that we can develop Christian minds. It's as we dwell on the word of God that we will be transformed from those who think as the world thinks and into those who think as God thinks. And it's then that we'll be able to live according to the will of God. Don't misunderstand at this point. It's not that as Christians we're now to somehow tune out to everything that the world has to say for it, to us. You know, it's not as though we can no longer switch on the television that we can no longer mix with non-Christian friends for fear of imbibing their way of thinking. Now, I think the principle at work here is that by dwelling often on God's word, by us often reading the Bible, that we will become so thoroughly renewed, our minds will be, that as we live in the world, we'll be able to know almost instinctively what we're to do in any given situation in order to please God. I think that's what Paul is saying in the second sentence there in verse 2. Look with me at the second part of verse 2. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. So it says we dwell on God's word that we will develop Christian minds, we will renew our thinking and then we'll be able to use that thinking as we live in the world. So let me ask you. Are you doing that? Are you renewing your mind? Are you reading God's word? Are you dwelling on God's word? Are you coming to church regularly to hear God's word? Are you in a Bible study? Are you reading God's word daily? Friends, the old adage is right. Garbage in, garbage out. And if you're only feeding your mind with the garbage of this world, its philosophies, its priorities, then you will soak it up. And whether you're aware of it or not, you will live it out. We need to dwell on God's word often. Not so that we can escape from this world, but so that we can develop a Christian worldview. So that we will become what we think. And so we'll be able to respond appropriately to the mercy that God has shown each and every one of us. And just so we haven't missed the point, Paul, he now goes on to give us an example, an example of how someone with a renewed mind will think, or in this case, won't think. The person with a renewed mind won't think too highly of themselves. Read with me from verse 3. Verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. See, a person with a renewed mind, they're going to be somebody who thinks of themselves with sober judgment. In other words, they're not going to have too high an opinion of themselves. And I guess we could add they're not going to have too low an opinion of themselves either. They're going to consider themselves with sober judgment. 
And that'll happen when you come to develop a Christian mind. And there's two factors at work here. Firstly, you'll think about yourself soberly when you come to realise and understand that under the gospel, all Christians are equal. Paul puts it this way in verse 3. But rather, think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. In accordance with the measure of faith. The idea here isn't that we've all been given different amounts of faith so that you know, some of us can think more soberly about ourselves than others. No, it's actually exactly the opposite idea here. The idea here is that we've been given the same faith, the same measure of faith. We've been given the same measuring stick, which is our faith, the same gold standard. In other words, we have the same belief. That's true, isn't it? It's true, isn't it, that you believe yourself to be a sinner saved by grace? Me too. That makes us all the same. You see, it's our faith that is the great leveller. You can't have grasped the Christian faith. You can't have dwelt on the word of God and still think yourself as being better than anybody else. That's inconsistent with the measure of faith we've been given. The second factor that will cause you to consider yourself with sober judgment is the fact that you as an individual Christian are just one part of a whole. Just like the human body has different parts that are all united, so too are we as individual Christians, all part of the one body, the body of Christ, the church. Look with me from verse 4. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. So yes, the different parts of the human body are going to have different functions. So the foot's function is going to be different to the hand's function. But that doesn't mean that the, the foot is in some way better or inferior to the hand. No, it just means they're different. They've got different functions. Well, Paul's point here is that we as a church are the same. As individual Christians, we might have different functions, different talents. But that doesn't make anybody better than anybody else. It just means that the church can operate the way it was always designed to. So can you see? Can you see the way Paul is using this example here to illustrate how renewed thinking will affect our behaviour? When you've renewed your mind, you'll no longer think of yourself more highly than you would. And that's radically different thinking to the thinking of the world, isn't it? The world which looks upon talent as something which actually sets us apart from one another. Or even worse, sets one person above another. You know, our world which says, if you've got a talent, then you're the one to be admired, praised, even sometimes worthy of worship. We call it Australian Idol after all. But we Christians aren't to think that way. We're to renew our minds, remembering that we are all sinners saved by grace, remembering that we are just individuals which form part of a body. It's radically different thinking. It's not conforming, it's transforming but it's essential thinking if we're going to respond to God's mercy appropriately.
So if you've got a gift, good. Make sure you use it. And use it as it was intended, for, not, not, not to glorify yourself, but in order to build up Christ's body, the church. That's Paul's point as he continues in through verses 6 and eight to 8, where he really gets quite specific and he lists seven gifts, seven gifts that come to us through the grace of God. Look with me from verse 6. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. There you go, seven gifts. Not all the gifts, all the gifts available, just a few of them, just seven of them. But did you notice how Paul went through these gifts? How he's almost blasé about the people with the gifts. You know, at no point does he ever set one person above another because of the gift that they've got. He's just like, okay, if you've got a gift, good, now get on and use it. You know, if it's encouraging, encourage. If it's teaching, uh, teach. The point is, whatever gift you've been given, it's been given to you not because you deserve it, but because of the grace of God. So get on, use it. Don't hide it, use it. Use it as it was intended, not to glorify yourself, but in order for, or for the good of the church. I wonder if that's the way that you have come to think about yourself and to think about your gifts. Because unfortunately, I suspect that a lot of Christians don't have renewed thinking on this matter. Unfortunately, I think a lot of Christians perhaps see themselves as people with gifts that aren't to be used, perhaps because their gift, a particular gift, isn't spectacular enough. And so I think a lot of Christians view church as a bit of a spectator sport. Church is all about getting, all about receiving. Church, coming to church, is all about sitting in a pew. But that's wrong thinking. God has put you here in Chatswood Presbyterian Church with gifts. Gifts that are to be used, not hidden, used for the good of the people that are sitting around you right now. Don't ever think of your gifts as being too basic. God wouldn't have given them to you if he didn't want you to be using them. And this is something that I... I think, too, that age doesn't matter. Can I tell you, one of the greatest encouragers of my life is a lady named Mary. Mary's now in her early 80s, I guess. And uh, what she's good at is encouragement. And over the last several years now, Mary has written me letter upon letter. Letters encouraging me to stay Christian. Letters encouraging me to be Christian. I've kept every single letter because they mean so much to me and I know that I'm not the only one that she writes to. What's your gifts? Encouraging, like Mary? 
cleaning, counting money, arranging flowers, teaching, serving, music. The list's endless, isn't it? It goes on and on and on. Don't be a spectator anymore. Use your gifts. Because that's the sort of behaviour that will flow from a renewed mind. And as you do this, you'll be offering your body to God as a living sacrifice and you'll be responding appropriately to the mercy that he's shown you. What are we going to do with all this? What are we going to do with everything that we've thought about this morning? Well, I think we're left with two questions. The first question that I think we're left with is this. Have you understood the mercy of God? Have you understood the fact that once upon a time you were destined for hell, you deserved hell, but that God out of his grace has changed that so that now heaven is yours? Have you understood the mercy of God? Because if not, then you need to know that something has gone terribly wrong. So you might be a really good person. And you might be a person that does really nice stuff. That's good. But it isn't Christian worship that you're doing. The fact is, if the good works that you are doing are not flowing as a result of the mercy that God has shown you, the fact is, you're closer to being a Rotarian than you are a Christian. It's not Christian worship you're doing. And that's a big problem. If this is you, then what you need to do is you need to go back. Go back into the first 11 chapters of Romans. You need to look again there at God's plan. You need to look again there at the mercy that he's shown you. It could be that you've got a little bit more climbing to do. But until you understand for yourself the mercy of God in your life, then you will not, you cannot worship God. But I suspect that that's not the big problem for us here at uh, Chatswood Presbyterian Church. Now, I come along here every week like you, and like you, I, I hear the gospel preached every single week. I know that the mercy of God is talked about here. And I know that most people here have come to understand the mercy of God and accept, them for, accept it for themselves. But there may be another problem, which brings us to our second question. Are you responding to the mercy of God? Are you responding to the mercy of God? See, once you're clear on the mercy of God, well, you cannot stop there. You've got to respond. Respond with everything that you have. My fear for North Shore Presbyterians is that, generally speaking, we are happy to stop there. My fear is that we are happy to settle for an hour of worship a week. That we aren't offering God all of our life. That we're offering him a mere portion. Thinking that because we've been to church this week, that our business of, with God is done for the week. I fear that we're not renewing our minds. That we are spending hours a week watching television reading newspapers, listening to the radio, watching book, reading books. And how long are we spending in God's word? I fear minutes. 
I fear that we are conforming to the world rather than being transformed. That we're no different from our non-Christian neighbours. That we have the same attitude towards money and our need to consume and our emphasis on career. I fear that we choose not to use our gifts. Choosing to be spectators rather than participators. Were you not at our church weekend away this year? Is that because you're a spectator? I don't know. I don't know. That's between you and God. Will you not be at morning tea this morning? Is that because you're a spectator? I don't know. That's between you and God. But friends, until we have seen and we have understood the mercy of God, until we have responded to that mercy with our whole selves, then we need to know that what we're doing is less than Christian worship. And so... Here's the challenge. Here's what God is saying to each and every one of us here this morning. Brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, I urge you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the kindness that you've shown to us in the gospel. To think that Jesus has died for us wretched sinners. That we might be given everlasting life. Father, help us to do more than stand in awe at your mercy. Help us to respond constantly with everything we have. We pray that you would forgive us when we fail to respond as we ought. When we fail to be transformed choosing instead to be conformed to the world. Lord, bring in us a new commitment, a new resolution to renew our minds through your word. And as we do so, may we see ourselves and each other as you see us, using our gifts for the good of your church, that we might bring you the worship that you so richly deserve. Amen.